Go ahead and begin. Well, good morning, everyone. Once again, thank you for being here. <clears throat> this morning we're continuing in our study, and I think this is lesson seven, although I didn't print out new notes for you. You have the same outline that you had last week, and there's a reason for that. Last week, my intention was to go through the issues of Christ being revealed in the labor and then get into the three pieces of furniture that are in the holy place. But typical of what happens is, I, I think hopefully it was the Lord who had the determination to say more than I had determined to say. So it's not that I'm too wordy. I'm not. Never have been. Never will be. Someone said, why do you talk so much? Because there's so much to talk about. Amen. When it comes to the Word of God, it is an inexhaustible well of treasure. Isn't that right? So thank God for that. So this morning we continue, having already done the labor, and this morning we're in the holy place. Now remember again, always a reminder, <clears throat> because from time to time there may be folks who are visiting us for the first time and then for the rest of us who have been in here the whole time, we have a tendency to forget. You remember in school when the teacher said, we're going to have a test next week. What was the hope of the class? Will we have a re-what? Review. Can we review? Because we know how prone we are to forget. The issues of the world come in against us, enter our mind, our thoughts, our souls. And as those issues enter and bombard us, if we're not careful, they begin, if you would, to push out the remembrances of the things that God does to the sidelines. And one of the dangers is that we then continue to live forgetting many of the things that the Lord has already done and talked to us about and told us He would do. And we begin to live according to what the world is saying is important. I think all of us have experienced that, haven't we? So we always want to refresh. And so God wanting and making sure that He will keep His intention of creation. By now, everybody knows why God created us. Remember that great, great verse that umbrella verse that explains everything that God will do in and for and through mankind. What is that verse? Genesis 1, 26. It is the controlling all-purpose statement of God for all of us for all time. So that any time in my life and in your life, if there is ever a question, and there should be many questions, what to do, when to do, how to do it, why to do it, and, and don't do it, and go here, and don't go here, and all of that. All of those questions can be gathered up. There's not a question about my life or your life that cannot be gathered up and put under the context of Genesis 1.26 when the Lord said what? Let us make and name yourself. Name yourself. Let me make, let us make Lester Coe, Darlene DeShari. You know, continuing, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And so everything about my life, everything about your life has to do now with 
either becoming the image of God through being birthed into the kingdom of God, and then after having been born again, after having been saved, now everything has to do with my walking with God in such a way that I am becoming more and more conformed to the image of God's Son. Remember, in Romans 8, 29, for He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so the image in Genesis 1:26, let us make man in our image, is the image of this one man, this one man who faithfully, fully, always obeyed, trusted the Father's will. That's the one in whose image we are being conformed. And so because of the fall, remember, God will maintain his purpose. And so in order to do that, now he's dealing with a sinful people in whom the image has been marred because of sin. So what is God going to do? To give up? No. He's going to restore his people. He's going to bring back, if you would, recreate his fallen people into that image. And so he's going to do that initially being uh, revealed in Genesis, in Genesis 1, 321, what? When he took the man and the woman and he said, look, take off those fig leaves. Take off those leaves that you made. That work that you have done by the work of your hands to try to cover up and maybe even bring forgiveness or whatever to make you acceptable before God. Take it off and I am going to cover you. Cover you with what? The skin of an animal. So immediately in Genesis 1.21, we see the revelation of how God will restore His intention in His people and recreate His fallen people into His new creation, His image once again. He's going to do it through the shedding of blood, through the sacrifices which in the Old Testament will be looking forward to or picturing one sacrifice of one man for all of his children for all time. And so when Moses is called, remember many years later, Moses is called to lead the people out of the Egyptian slavery, and they come into the wilderness, and God gives them the law. Remember in Genesis chapter 20, then in Genesis chapter 25, the Lord brings Moses up to himself, and he says, look, here is what I want you to do. On earth, I want you to create the pattern that will follow exactly the pattern of the heavenlies, my throne, my presence, my place in the heavenlies. I want you to make a, an earthly representation of that. And in that place I will dwell among my people, showing in a physical way once again that one day there is coming a man in whom all the presence and all the fullness of God will dwell in bodily form. You see that, remember, in Colossians. And so in John 1.14, what does John say? After having said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. Remember that? In Genesis, uh, Genesis John 1.14, what does he say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that tabernacle... And everything about it is God's Old Testament means of maintaining fellowship with His people 
through the death of innocent animals. Looking forward to the day, picturing, prefiguring, foreshadowing the day when all of that which is done in the Old Testament as a type is fulfilled in one man at the cross. So in Colossians 2.17, the apostle says, Paul is what? I'm sorry, in Christ is what? The fullness. Christ is the substance, is the completion of all that God has done. And so last week we went through, or the last week or two, we went through the brazen altar, which is the first piece of furniture in the courtyard having to do with the sacrificing of an innocent one. Then last week we talked about the laver, which is the place where the priest would wash his hands and feet, symbolizing the washing of regeneration. Remember what I said? What about that word regeneration? What do you see in that word regeneration? Regenesing, recreating. God recreating. It is a picture of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in us because of the death that occurred at the altar. And then also is a picture of the continual cleansing of us as we see in John 13. Jesus says, you don't have to have your whole body washed because, you know, because you're saved. Essentially what he's saying, you're, you're cleansed, but your feet need to be washed because you're going to pick up the pollution of the world in your daily walk. So you have to have that daily washing of God by the water of the word through the Holy Spirit. This morning now, we're ready now to enter into the most holy place. I'm sorry, the holy place, which is inside the tabernacle building itself. Remember the two compartments, the first one being the holy place, and then the one on the inside, the innermost place, is called the most holy place of the holy of holies. Okay, so we come into the holy place. What do we see? Well, the first thing, well, we see three pieces of furniture. The first one I'm going to make mention of is probably the first one where your eye would be caught. Because when you walk in, there is light in the holy place. And so when you walk into it, your eyes are going to immediately go to the light. I think it will go first to the light. I don't guarantee that, but I think for most of us, we walk in and there's light over here, and we're going to go, it lights the whole place. It's kind of a dim light, but the light is here, lighting the whole little room here. So we're going to look at that light first, and I think that's an indication of what the Lord is saying about himself and about the picture of Christ. <clears throat> Once the ministry of the outer court has been accomplished, the sacrifice, the washings. The priest can now enter into the holy place. And so what is the holy place about? I think it's about several things, but essentially I think that what we need to know is the holy place represents, has to do with the inner life of a believer, the inner life of a believer, what God is doing in us who are in Christ. What does the menorah say about Christ? So the first piece of furniture you see is the golden lampstand or the golden candlestick. And I'm going to call it the menorah because the menorah was one of the terms. And I want to use that term because that's typically the term that we don't use just to familiarize ourselves and become a part of our normal vocabulary of Old Testament places and things. What does this menorah say about Christ? Now remember, there's seven pieces of furniture. And like everything else about the tabernacle, the courtyard and the tabernacle itself. Everything has to say something about the person and work. I didn't say either the person or the work. Combination, the person and work. Because the person and the work of Christ in God's mind is one. 
It's not the person of Christ and then the work of Christ. It's not the work of Christ, the person of Christ. It is a person and work. They are one together. So what does the menorah say about the person and work of Christ? <clears throat> it was the only light in the holy place which spoke of who? Of Jesus being the light of God's presence within his people. What is the first in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Remember? And darkness was upon the face of the earth. Remember? And what happened? And the Spirit of the Lord moved, hovered over the waters. You remember that? And what was the first thing, Errol, that God said in verse 3, Genesis 1, 3? Let there be light. The first thing God says is, let there be light. Now, let's not discuss, well, what about the world? How did it get there? Who said? The first thing that God records about what he says is, let there be light. And so, light comes into this dark whatever it was there something was there something was there do you do understand that right isn't that what the word says something was there and it was dark and in order to animate it or vivify it or bring life to it light has to come and so the Lord says let there be light and what was the consequence? And there was light. And then he began to distinguish, remember, the light, the greater light and the lesser light. You remember all that. Well, that light that comes into the world as the vivifying, vivifying, making a lie, the vivifying work of God, now comes into the world in the birth of this little child to Mary. You remember how his birth was announced? You remember how it was proclaimed? Do you remember that? There was an announcement in the heavens through a light. We call it the star of Bethlehem. But what is the issue here? A star, a moon, a planet? No. The issue is that God, once again, as he did on the initial activity of creation, once again in his recreative activity to bring back the cosmos, his people, into a Garden of Eden relationship of walking with them face to face, as they are his image people. How does he begin it? He begins it just as he does in Genesis. At the birth of Jesus, what happens? Let there be a light that announces and leads the way and proclaims that Jesus, who in John, remember, 8, says what? I am the light. And so you see, light is that great manifestation of the very presence and glory of God. You remember how God led the people in the wilderness. Remember that? During the day, the pillar of what? Smoke of the cloud, and at nighttime, the great light of the fire. 
God led his people this way. And so Jesus says, I am the light. Now, can you imagine what this must have meant to the Jew? Because the Jewish people understood that he was saying something more than, hey, I'm a light bulb. I'm a flashlight. He is identifying himself with the very initiating, creative activity and person of God himself. You see, we don't see all that. Sam, you don't see all that there, do you? I mean, typically, who, who sees it? We've read this so many years, and we don't have that background. But when these people heard that, when these people listened to these I am statements, seven of them in John, Jesus says things that are absolutely astounding and rattles their cages. It shakes their whole understanding of who this man is. These are monumental proclamations to a people who understand this word and understand the background and understand what Jesus is saying. No wonder he gets himself into so much trouble. You see, the menorah had, what did it look like? Well, you see it up here. It had one central branch and three branches coming out the sides. Now, whether the three branches were curved like this or whether they were at a 45 diagonal, which we see, or whether they are at a 90 degree coming out of the side, I don't know. We've seen three different you know, ways this could look. I don't know which one it was. The, whole, the, whole, the, whole, the word doesn't say, and you have to make the branches this way or whatever. And there are decorations on these branches. They look like the branches of a what? of a tree. They're they're decorated. We're not going to go into the decorations and all the the little things on there. But what does this say? What does this say? There's the central column and then the three on each side. What does it say? How many of you remember in John chapter 15, Jesus' final discourse to the disciples? And how does he begin John chapter 15? I am what? the vine, and you are the branches. Okay, I'm the vine, I'm the what? The main trunk, and you are what grows out of me, comes forth out of me. Remember, he said, if you abide in me, if you don't abide in me, etc. Remember that. And then in John 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. And so right away we get a picture of not only Jesus being the light, but also of us who are his own being connected into him. And as he says in Matthew chapter 5, what he says, I am the light of the world. Remember that? And then he goes down a little further in Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. And what does he say? He says, you're the light. He says, so do what? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Why? And glorify your Father in heaven. So we're talking about the inner life of the believer. In Christ, we have been now connected to and have been imbued with the very creative person of God himself by the Spirit. And now we are his light bearers. We are imaging his light upon the earth to the place that we are walking in a way that that light is shining through these vessels. We are connected to him. 
The light of the menorah came from the oil. You remember how they did this? The priest would go in in the mornings and the priest would go in in the evening. And they would put, they had little cups at the top of each one of these seven branches, the main branch and the three on each side, six. And so all seven had little cups and a little wick in them. And so the priest, you know, the oil would burn down. I mean, the, the, the wick would burn, the oil would be depleted somewhat. And so the priest would have to come in and trim off. How many of you have ever burned candles or oil? And what happens? There comes a layer of what? Kind of a hardened kind of a layer. And if you don't trim your wicks, if you don't trim the wick, if you don't pull off that, that crud, if you would, the light is going to go out. So the oil, representing of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in our life, has to be trimmed or maintained and poured in and tended to twice a day by the priest so the light never goes out. Again, a ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, maintaining us in Christ, maintaining our testimony, maintaining our walk, maintaining our inner purity, etc., etc. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what's being shown here in this menorah. So the light of the menorah came from the oil that was replenished daily by the priest, which speaks of the anointing work of the Holy Spirit. So you see, it is the Spirit in us who keeps the light of Christ shining brightly and continually enabling us to walk in the light. Remember what 1 John 7 says. I'm sorry, 1 John 1, 7 says, But if you walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now there's a lot more we could say about this. But I think what we have here is a clear revelation of the work of God in our lives. We were in darkness. We were dead in sins and trespasses. Remember that? And what happened? How were we saved? You remember what 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says? In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the glory of the light, the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God. Blinded. When you're in blindness, what does that mean? You can't see nothing. Everything is dark to you. That's how we were. We were, as it were, the uncreated cosmos that we see in the beginning of Genesis. This is how we were or were spiritually before we were born again. This is the, re, this is the result of Adam's sin in Genesis 3, 6. And he ate. We were all born into utter darkness spiritually. Oh, yes, we were very much alive in the natural. We knew things. We were going places, and we were activity, and we were back and forth, and, and man, this playbook, and we were da, da, da. But inside, we were absolutely without any light whatsoever. So what had to happen? So Paul says what? Our minds were darkened by the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And then what does he say in 2 Corinthians 4.6? But God, who said, let there be light, what? Has shown in our, what? Has shown in our hearts 
with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This one who said, let there be light, spoke light into our darkened lives. Just as I said, he spoke light into that darkened world in Genesis. And as a result of that, we became lit up in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And now we are the containers of the light of God. And our delight and duty today is to walk in a way through this world not allowing the impurities and the dirt of the world's culture to in any way cover the light. Now the fact of the matter is we will all always be getting dirt on us from the culture. Therefore John, what was it, chapter 13? Remember washing the feet. So the issue is Will I be polluted by the culture? Yes, you're going to be polluted by the culture. But the issue is this. Will we keep ourselves close to God through the Holy Spirit, in His Word, in His prayer, in fellowship, in confession, in repentance? Will we do that? And as we do that, what does the Holy Spirit do? He continually cleanses us of all the impurities and keeps us as a vessel. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So the Holy Spirit will cleanse this vessel continually of its pollution from sin and the culture so that we can be shining lights in the world. It has something to do, I'm sorry, that is something about the menorah. The next piece of furniture, uh, the next one at least we'll talk about. Uh, There it is. (coughs) Wait, there. Wait, let me go back. Ah, the table of showbread. The table of showbread. Nope, I have it incense in my notes, so let's do that. Okay, the golden altar of incense. Where is the golden altar of incense? As you come into the holy place, as I stand in the holy place at the gate, where the curtain is, in front of me are three pieces of furniture. On my left is what? The menorah. In front of me is the golden altar of incense, and on my right is the table of showbread. Okay, remember, that's how it works. The table of showbread. That's the I'm going to the table of showbread. Forgive me for being so confusing. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to the table of showbread. I thought, why would I put incense next? Because this is kind of the third one. The table of showbread. All right, here's a table on which there are 12 loaves of bread. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? There are 12 loaves of bread in here. These loaves represent the bread from heaven which the Lord fed the people. Remember in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, remember they were grumbling and murmuring, we're out here, we don't have any bread, we're going to die, why'd you bring us out here? It'd have been better to go back to Egypt rather than to die here, and come on, don't you care about us and what's going on, and when will my life ever change, and where's God? He doesn't hear, he's not as, over and over again. So the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven, a heavenly bread, for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day so what does the lord do it's called manna the word manna means what is it 
I mean, that's just kind of what the word manna means. What's this? It's manna. Yeah, I know, but what is it? It's manna. What? It's manna. That's what manna meant. What is this stuff? Little flaky little things, you know. And so Israel was fed for 40 years in the wilderness. Remember that? Now, why did Moses, why did God feed Israel that way? Why did God lead Israel all those years, feeding them daily by the manna? Remember, give us this day our daily manna. Give us this day our daily provision. Well, why does he do that? Where does he explain what he's doing? He says, I want you to understand what I've been doing for these 40 years. Because you can imagine, you get to the end of the 40 years, Frank, and say, I know we've passed that same rock five times. <laughs> I remember because my great-great-grandson put his initials on that rock years ago, right? Some kind of way, Amos got his name on that. Lovely grandchildren. They're almost as cute as mine. So, and that's a compliment. That's a high compliment. And... Why has the Lord led you back and forth and all around this, this area? What's going on? How many of you think and uh, feel that sometimes, let's face it, the Lord is leading us in circles? Come on. Am I the only one that ever feels that way? It's like what's happening, what we're doing, where we're going, and how things are working out. And so where's the Lord's explanation? Deuteronomy 8. Remember that? And the Lord says, and I think it begins in verse 2, maybe verse, I think it's verse 2, that you may remember all the way, all the way that I have led you. For what purpose? That you may learn this lesson, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God doth man live. Our sustenance, our daily provision is the Word of God, is the provision of God. You remember another man one day was in the wilderness. That wilderness, by the way, is a very important principle for believers to understand. We're saved, and there will be a wilderness experience for us because we have to learn the lesson of Deuteronomy 8. Each one of us needs to learn that as we enter this life in Christ, we are not entering something now that we are now burdened to do for God, but that we are learning to be dependent upon God's provision and walk in the good of that provision, not doing something for God, but doing everything with God. And so you remember another man who was tempted being in the wilderness of 40 days. <clears throat> and the enemy comes to Jesus, and what does he say? You see these rocks? You're hungry, aren't you? He could probably hear Jesus' stomach grumbling. 40 days without any food? And he says, what, John? Why don't you turn these rocks into what? Bread. Why don't you make an oyster loaf over here? And what does Jesus say? It is written, what? Man shall not live by bread alone. Where is he getting that? Where is he getting that? He's getting it from Deuteronomy 8. Is it verse 3? Yes, sir. 8.3. He's getting it from Deuteronomy 8.3. The whole context, the whole meaning of the showbread is that God's daily provision for us, the way he feeds us, the way the sustenance of our lives is us to feed on Christ himself. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Remember, he's fed the 5,000 people in the Gospel of John 
All of these folks have been fed. He goes across the lake, and what happens? All these people follow him. Remember that? They follow him. Why? Because he's fed them. He's fed them. And so he's going to explain what's happening. And as he explains this in John 6, 31, here is what he said. Our fathers ate the, what's this stuff? The manna. They ate this, what's this stuff in the wilderness? As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, now listen to this. Get what it must have felt like to these people. You see, we read the word, Jesus said this, and we move along. Here is a nation many of whom who have just experienced a miracle as Israel did in the wilderness. Food. Remember, we're dealing with a long time ago in a deprived area maybe, and we don't have McDonald's on every corner, so these people are hungry. They may not have come out for a whole day's thing, so they're hungry. They have little children. What are we going to do? We need to get home. Remember? Philip, you feed them. What do you mean me? And Jesus says, have him sit down, what? And he took the food, and what did he do? He blessed it and distributed it. And the people realized, oh, <clears throat> this is the same kind of miracle that happened to Israel, to our forefathers back under Moses. This man is doing what that man did. Feel it. Don't just read it and go through and, hey, I'll do. get the context. What must they have felt? This man is doing what that man did. Now, that was shocking enough. But then for this man to stand up and say, truly, truly, what? Of truth, of truth. This is absolute truth from God. Remember, this is the final exam. This is significant. Truly, truly, I say to you. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread from heaven. It was not Moses who gave you, my Father gives you. You see, the, remember the verbs, watch the verbs. What you're eating, I know you're remembering Moses. It wasn't Moses who did this, it was God. My Father gave you that bread, and he gives you this bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he says what? I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the one that God was picturing in the wilderness so many years ago that from heaven came down upon the earth and became part of the earthly sustenance and provision and nourishment of my people. God was saying that in those days, he maintained his people provisionally until a permanent provision occurred as a result of the cross of Christ. All of that was provisional, shadows, types, until the permanent came in Christ. And if you recognize anything of what I just said, you know something about the book of Hebrews because he talks about that permanence and impermanent covenants. 
Why 12 loaves? One loaf for each of the tribes, so that all of Israel was represented in this table that stood before the presence of God in the most holy place. So each of those loaves represented one of the tribes. And so what is the table of showbread saying? That all of God's people are represented and all of God's people are sustained and provided for in this one who is himself the bread of life. No one is left out. No one is left out. All of us have the bread of life. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Because there is one loaf, we are all made one body. But we partake of one loaf or one bread. So Paul says later, that 12 loaves, those 12 loaves over there represent one loaf, one continuity of work, one comprehensive people. Not just 12 little pieces, but it represents a comprehensive people. 12 pieces, certainly, but put within the perimeter of the tabletop, bringing them all together in an association or in a covenant of fellowship or in a community so that all these folks together may live as a community. Why? Because in order to image the community of God's being, three persons in one, we must be the community of the church living in a way that we are representing who God is in himself, the three persons of the Trinity, relating to one another through roles in love. Let's talk about the altar of incense. Uh, is that it? The altar of incense stood immediately before the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. So this is the last piece of furniture that we have to talk about until we get into the most holy place next week. So what does the altar of incense say about Christ? This is the altar at which the priest, now remember, and we're going to talk about the priesthood, so I just want to make a little comment today. One of the primary ministries or functions or reasons for a priest was not only to bring the things of man to God and minister before God, but in this priest, this high priest, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, the entire nation was represented in this one man before God. And again, what do you see here? Do you see that in Christ, the high priest, all of God's people are represented before God? And so the altar, the priest who represents the entire nation, offers prayers, remember intercessions and priests and praises before the presence of the Lord upon, for the, upon, on behalf of the nation. I'm trying to get it out. I'm trying to get it out. Now you see, what a wonderful example this is of the kind of intercession you see in Genesis chapter 18. Remember in Genesis chapter 18? God's man, Mo, uh, Abraham, is interceding for his people. Remember, Lot was part of Abraham's family. And you remember Lot and Abraham 
are sharing the mountainside. And the herds of these two men are too plentiful. And so there's contention among the herdsmen. There's fighting, inner fighting. I know that none of you have any experience at all of quarreling in the family. I know that, but that's, you know, totally absent from us. And so what does Abraham do? He tells Lot, look, we have to separate. We're going to have to do this better. We all can't feed on the same limited resources on the hillside. And so Abraham says something startling. He says, Lot, you choose, and I will submit to what you want to do. And so Lot, hey, great, fine, looks up. Hmm. He sees the valley of the Jordan. I mean, this thing is really green, beautiful, lush. And he sees over there a couple of cities. Hmm. One's named Sodom, the other one named Gomorrah. Okay. Okay, it's, it's just another city. It doesn't matter where we live. You know, God will be okay with where we live. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It's okay. You decide for yourself where you want to live. That's where you're going to make more money. You live there. That's where you go over here because it's going to be nice over there. Yeah, it's okay. These decisions are all right. And that's what Lot does. He moves toward, and finally he gets himself what? Into the city itself. And so Lot is in the gate of the city. He's participating in the things of the city. But see, what he doesn't know is that the morality of the city has been slowly intertwining his heart, which is what happens to every one of us as we compromise with the morality of the world, even so little, even a little bit. It will be okay. God will understand. Don't be so upset about it. You're too radical. I think this is going to be fine. And it's just the way, and we get swallowed up. All those thoughts are Satan's hooks in your mind and heart and in mine. And so the Lord appears to Abraham in chapter 18 and essentially he says, I'm going to destroy those cities. And what does Abraham do? He falls on his face and begins to pray. And in the King James, he says, peradventure. I like sometimes the words in King James. Peradventure, perhaps. If there be 50 people in the city, because will the judge of the world do unjustly and sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous? No. And you remember he, 50, 45, and he winds up getting down to what number? 10. Now, he doesn't go past 10. Whether he knows not to go past or whether the Lord just closes or whatever, the Lord says, I'm going. And you remember, there are not ten people, but there's Lot and his three daughters, and they're taken out of the city, and the Lord destroys the city. By the way, may I share something very interesting? For those of us who think that we have free will to do what we want to do, and God would never force us, and he's not a, and God's a gentleman. God's a gentleman. God's a gentleman. He's always a gentleman on that. Because there's a very interesting comment. In chapter 19, the, lot, the angel is telling Lot, I'm going to destroy the city. Get up, get out. Take your daughters, your sons-in-law and all. Get out of town. Lot said, well, you know, I don't know my son. You know. And the angel, what? He grabs Lot by the arm and he forces him out. 
That's God's mercy. So don't you ever think that God's that much of a gentleman. If he has to pull your hair out as Nehemiah does in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, or if he has to yank your arm and pull you out of something, thank God for his overcoming powerful grace over my ignorance and my willful sinfulness. Amen? Yes. So let me close with this verse about intercession. Praying before God, representing the people before God. All of us have heard this great verse in Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, because of all that Paul, uh, the apostle has already, or whoever the writer is in Hebrews has already said, therefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. What does that mean? That there is in the heavens today, and there is in the heavens tomorrow, and there is in the heavens the next day. Shall I continue? And the next day, and the next day, and for how many more days? Forever. There is in the heavens a risen man who has paid the full forever and final penalty and price for all the sin of all God's people for all time. There is a risen man. And all of God's people are contained in this man. When I say contained, I don't mean physically contained, but spiritually or named and identified and known and accepted and fellowship with God in this man's presence with God forever. Therefore, how secure are we in Christ? As long as that man remains, we also remain. Correct? As long as he remains, we remain forever with him. That's what intercession is. Does that mean Jesus is speaking to the Father on our behalf? Well, yes, it does. Why? Because he ever lives. We in him will live forever with him. Amen? That's something about the altar of incense. Next week, we'll talk about the most holy place. See you next week.